every morning, and you are faithful to us despite our faithlessness and unfaithfulness. God, thank you for your mercy in giving us your son and pouring, and, and Jesus and pouring out your life for us and condescending to become a man and, and dying for us and in our place. Father, thank you for your continual mercy to draw us to yourself, to forgive us, to make us alive in you. God, to point us back to hope in you for living for what matters most. God, I pray that we would all respond to your word this morning in worship. That that would be our main response. Our response would be in worship for your mercy to us. That we'd be more aware of your mercy to us. And that we would live our entire lives as a sacrificial offering to you. God, we pray this and I pray that you would help each and every person here to hear your word. To apply it to our hearts and minds and then to respond to you. God, would you enable me as I speak to hear from you and to be empowered by your Holy Spirit. God, we pray these things in your name. Because you are a loving and merciful Father. Amen. Well, I still remember the time when my wife Julie and I, we got to go to Georgetown University's campus right, outside, right in Washington, D.C. And we got to see a guy. He hadn't put any albums out yet or anything. His name was Stephen Curtis Chapman. And he was just playing on the college campus there. And he was playing some of these quaint songs about different folksy things. And, and one of the first songs he played it really kind of got us interested, and, and it, was, it was a song about his experience as a, young, a parent of young children. He had, he had I think, a three- or four-year-old, and if, if you have a three- or four-year-old in the house, or if you have a three- or four-year-old sibling, maybe you've experienced what he did. And so he wrote a whole song about it, and the song was, Why, 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 And it went on from there. And, and uh, we chuckled, we didn't have kids yet, and then we got it. Years later, you know, I, I remember that was the primary word being used, at least with our first child, second child. Now, as the other children go, go along, they kind of learn better to ask why too many times. It doesn't always solicit the best response. But the first one or two, they don't know any better, so they keep asking the why questions. You know, why are we here? Why are we going there? Why do I have to get in the car? Why do I have to buckle up? Why do you make a funny face when I ask why so much? You know, and, and, you know, why is the sky blue? Why did God make us? Why do frogs jump? Why do birds chirp? Why, why are we supposed to live for God? Why, why are you acting so strange right now, Dad? Why are you talking to Mom that way? There's always why questions that came that, made, that weren't always the easiest to answer. They, weren't un, they were a little uncomfortable at times. But I think it's because it's inherent to our human nature to, to have those why questions. And the danger as parents, by the way, is just saying, just do it because I said so. Which, you know, eventually I think there's times when we fall back into that. But the danger of that is because that's not enough motivation. That just because I said so, or just do it. That's not good enough motivation. Now, there are times when you're in a rush as a parent, of course, and you're like in the grocery store and you're like, sit down there like, why? Because you need to do it now. You know, there's times when, because I said so, might temporarily work, but it's not an ultimate motivation. You know, no one here is motivated by serving God by thinking, because God said so. You know, that, that, that leads actually us to wonder why. Why? And it's a deep question for all of us. But it's not the only question we ask as humans. We, we ask, you know, why? why? Why should we respond to God? Why do, we, why do we respond to God at all? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to live? What does it look like to love and obey God? What's God's will for us? I don't know if you've ever asked any of those questions before. 
Anybody here ever ask any of those questions? You know, what, how are we supposed to live? How am I supposed to do that? What does that look like? How, how am I supposed to know God's will? Um, what, what does it look like to live as a Christian? What's God's will for me? Anybody here ever ask those questions? You can raise your hand. It's okay. You know, the questions that we have, they can get uncomfortable. God, why did you call me to do these difficult things? Why is it so hard to change? How do I change? How can I know your will when things seem so foggy? And and you know what Paul is doing in these two verses of Romans? He's actually addressing a lot of the why, the what, the how questions of Christianity. If you were going to encapsulate what does it look like to live as a Christian, what does it look like to walk out the Christian life, to walk out really what Paul's been talking about the entire first half of the book of Romans, that, that really is these two verses in Romans. Why do we live the Christian life? How do we live the Christian life? What do we live it for? He addresses these big questions. And he tells us, really, this, this main idea here is that it's, it's motivated by God's mercy. That's the big why. why. Why do we respond to God? Why do we live for him? Well, motivated by God's mercy. Motivated by God's mercy, the what or the, the how, both, really, is we, we present ourselves to him. Motivated by God's mercy, we present our bodies to him and pursue the process of transformation. And he's answering, really, the, the Why? Why do we live out our lives in obedience? Why? It's in response to his mercy. What, what does that look like? Well, it, it looks like presenting our bodies to him. And how do we do that? How do we present our bodies to him? Well, we do that by, by entering into, pursuing the process of transformation through renewing our minds. And that's really kind of the big idea here. And, and, and if you think about it, motivation makes all the difference. When you get out of bed, what drives you to get out of bed in the morning? Anybody? You can, you can, it's, okay. it's like a little interactive moment here. What drives you to get out of bed in the morning? Anything? Coffee, work, food, maybe a kid crying out for you or to you. Motivation in the Christian life makes all the difference. Why we do what we do affects how we do it. It affects whether or not we will continue to do it. If if you lose your job, you are less motivated to get out of bed in the mornings. If you don't feel like you have a purpose in life, you'll be less motivated to get up and do things. You'll get discouraged, and it's the cycle that builds on itself. It's no different in the Christian walk. If you don't understand the why, the motivation for living life is, is to be in response to his mercy and not to earn, then you're going to get discouraged and you're going to give up. If we're motivated by the outside of approval, of others, we're going to seek their approval in what we do, and it's going to stunt our growth. If, if you think that you have to earn God's approval or earn his favor, it's going to stunt your growth as a Christian, and you're going to live enslaved if you're motivated that way. If you're motivated by fulfilling ourselves or finding fulfillment in ourselves or in things or in activities or in what we have, you're, going to, you're going to get frustrated because you're never going to be completely fulfilled in anybody or anything else. If you're motivated by a sense of deserving, you know what you're going to do is you're going to demand that other people serve you. You're going to treat people like they were designed and built to serve you, and you're going to get frustrated and angry because they won't. And they don't always serve you. They don't always do what you want them to do. 
for motivated by desire to control, it could stem from not trusting in God. And you're going to get frustrated when you realize that we're not in control. And, and we're not in control of our own lives, but we're not in control of other people either. Motivation makes all the difference. If you're motivated to get people to do things for you, or reciprocate, or to accept you on the basis of your doing for them or serving of them, you are going to find yourself all alone and people will avoid you. You can be frustrated. Motivation makes all the difference in Christian living. You know, sometimes God will actually frustrate your own efforts to change if the motivation for that change is to try to earn his approval. Because he doesn't want you to be stuck thinking that somehow his approval of you has to do with your performance. So sometimes he frustrates our own efforts to change. Why am I not changing? Why am I not growing? And God says, because you think that you can earn my approval or my favor, and I don't want you to be caught in that trap. And so sometimes it's frustrating, and God says, what I want you to do is realize that you need my mercy. You need my grace. You need me to change you. You need to cry out to me. You know, God's too loving to let us think that somehow we can earn his favor through self-efforts because we'd be trapped in pride and self-righteousness. He's too loving to let us stay stuck in the delusion that somehow what we do makes him favorable because that's too fickle of a grounds and he wants us to have firm and solid foundation in all of life. Motivation makes all the difference. So what is the motivation for the Christian life all about? Paul is telling us in these two little, short, extremely powerful, impactful verses that if you get, will change how you live the Christian life. And Paul's letting us in on a secret. He says the primary motivator of the Christian life is gratitude in response to all the mercies of God. Living the Christian life is to live prompted by God's mercy. That's the first idea we're going to unpack here is that living the Christian life is to live life prompted by God's mercy. Not prompted by the approval of others, not prompted by trying to earn God's favor, not, not prompted by trying to get fulfillment and other things, but prompted in response to God's mercy. I want to live in response to God's mercy. God's been so merciful to us. One of the first things that we saw in the book of Romans as we've been going through our study was that mankind rejected God There's a theme here that goes throughout. Mankind rejected God and failed to worship him or acknowledge him as God. Denying the creator and it resulted, it started in the mind. In a debased, God gave people over to a debased mind and then it resulted in debased behavior and all manner of debauchery. That's what goes on in our own lives and Paul was unpacking that for us now. Now he's showing us the great reversal of that. But the reversal starts with a comprehension of, an apprehension of, and a response to God's mercy. If you do not understand the mercy of God, the mercies of God to you, you will be continually frustrated in the Christian life. Because you will think that living the Christian life is about trying to earn God's favor or approval. And Paul says that's not going to last it's, it's in view of God's mercies. It's in response to God's mercies. And hold, the whole first 11 chapters of Romans are really all about that, how God, in his mercy, that, that there is no one who is seeking God, and yet God sent his only son to come down to, to be a man, to reveal himself, to demonstrate himself to humankind. That's the ultimate mercy 
Not only that, we, we were hardened in our hearts. We weren't seeking for God. We weren't looking for God. And yet God made us alive in him. And, and when we repent and believe in him, he forgives us of all our sins. I cannot think of a more undeserved mercy. All our offenses against him have been forgiven. Through the good news of Jesus, God makes us alive, forgives us, redeems us, reconciles us. And then he fills us with his spirit. He enables us to follow him. The, whole, the first 11 chapters, really, of the book of Romans are all about, really, God's mercy to make the unrighteous righteous. It's how God makes the unrighteous righteous through the good news of Jesus Christ. And it's all about the mercies of God. And that's really how he ended verse, chapter 11, as he ends with this doxology, this praise. You can flip back there if you want. He ends with this praise for the mercy and the kindness of God. And it results in praise. And so when he says, therefore... That's what that word is there for. Therefore, looking back on all the mercies of God in your life. And as a Christian, you need to start there. Aaron talked earlier about preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. That's where it begins. It begins with us saying, God, you've been merciful to me. God, I am dependent on your mercy. God, I need your mercy fresh every day. But God, thank you that you give me mercy. Your mercies are new every morning. And God, so in response to your mercy, let me worship you. Let me live a life to you. These verses kind of explain what Paul meant in Romans 6.13 when he, he previously had said, he says, and do not go presenting the members of your body, reversing what the members of our body were presented to in Romans chapter 1. Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments to unrighteousness. He says, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. It's because the mercy of God has made us alive. We can present ourselves back to God as those alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. God, because you've saved me, I want to be a tool in your hand. It's all about how we live out what we believe. And that's really what these, these two verses are. And then, not only these two verses, but from Romans 12, 1 and 2, all the way through Romans 15, 13, it's about how do we live out, how do we live out the implications of the good news of Jesus Christ? How do we live in response to these truths, these indicatives? Now, what are the imperatives for us? And so this is really the hinge point of the whole letter. And it's a call to action, though, that flows from what we believe and from who we are, that we've been made righteous, and how merciful is that? No one here deserves to be seen as righteous in God's sight. And yet God continues to pour out his mercies on us. No one here deserves forgiveness. No one here deserves God's grace. And yet he, he mercifully pours it out to us in so many ways. It's in a call to action that flows from what we believe from who we are, completely grounded in the motivation of the joy we have in the mercies of God. It's a call to live in light of his mercy constantly. You know, I like, like how a guy named F.F. F. Bruce, he's a guy who's passed away, but he was a, a scholar on some of the books of Paul, and he says, doctrine is never taught in the Bible, simply that may be known. You know, the first 11 chapters of Romans are not like, oh, that's good news, okay, Thanks. But it's taught, it says, in order that it may be translated into practice. We're to live in response to God's mercies. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them, as Jesus said in John 13. But these, these appeals, though, aren't meant to be harsh. You can hear the appeal in full view of God's mercy, present yourself, and you can miss it in mercy, and you can miss the brotherly appeal, the tenderness that Paul is coming to the church with. And he says, 
I appeal to you, brothers, and that means brothers and sisters, by the way. I, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in, in full view or in response or by, according to God's mercy. That's the foundation for all of life. If you want to know what it looks like to live out the Christian life, to obey God, it, it all stems from a foundation of responding to the mercies of God. You, you don't obey God to earn favor before God. We obey God out of worship. And so that's how Paul appeals to us. You know, Doug Moose says that all, all that Paul has written in the letter thus far really can be summed up under the heading of mercy of God in action. That's, that's really the whole entire Christian life. God's pursuit of you to make we who were dead in our sins alive. To enable us to respond to him. He chose us. He called us in him. He enables us to respond to him. And then not only that, he forgives us. And he says there's no condemnation for us. And then he continually applies his tender mercies to you day after day. And, and I can't imagine how long the service would be if we put a mic up here and I said, hey, come up and tell me about the tender mercies of God in your daily life. Come up and tell me about it. Recount all the tender mercies of God. Look back on all your life, the things that you struggle with that you can even look back and say, you know what? That was actually God being merciful to not give me what I wanted. So many years I thought that's what I needed or wanted and God was being merciful to me by not letting me live for an idol, something that would really not fulfill me. You know, I once had a, a job that I was preparing for and I tested for and I got accepted into and I was so excited to go to it and then the federal government cut funding and I, the job went away. Looking back now, I can say, boy, that, although I was frustrated and it made me change careers, I got into computers I never wanted to go to computers. I thought they were all geeks, and then I got into it. And then maybe, well, maybe those two are similar, right? So, um, but I look back and I think, you know what? That was the tender mercies of God to withhold. That was the tender mercies of God to point me to him. God is tender and merciful to us. It's not just the mercy of salvation. He says his mercies. Sometimes things are difficult and that is because God wants us to learn to trust in him who is ultimately the only trustworthy one. Sometimes God pulls the rug out so that we don't trust in other people, we don't trust in our ability, and it's his mercy because God says, I am able, and I want you to trust in something that's actually gonna last, something you can rely on, someone you can rely on. God was merciful to us. He adopts us. He makes us his own. He sustains us. I can't think of all the trials and, and difficulties and troubles I've been sustained by, me sustained through by God. It's the tender mercies of God that motivate us and prompt us to live for God. Conversely, if you find, like I'd have at times, and I look back this past week and I failed in many moments where I was harsh or impatient or demanding, and I thought about what was going on there? What was going on is actually I was not aware of the mercies of God and instead, I was being self-righteous. But you know, if, if, we, if we are people who are grateful, if we are aware of our own need for mercy, we're going to be a grateful people. And we're going to interact with people differently. Not just individually, but as a church. I, I, I pray, and I, and I believe it already is the atmosphere of this church, but I pray we continue that when people come to the church, it's like, wow, you guys are friendly, you're really kind, it's, you're warm, you seem to like, like people. 
What's going on? And it, well, I, I hope that's an overflow of the fact that we're aware that we need God's mercy, and so we want to extend God's mercy by being kind to other people too. Now, it doesn't mean we're perfect. We get it wrong all the time. But I, I have prayer is that in the midst of that, we can actually extend mercy to each other when we get it wrong, when we offend each other, when we let each other down. Because we're more aware of the fact that we need mercy. We need grace. It's not about establishing our own righteousness. You know, self-righteousness and, and judgmentalism, it's easy to creep into our lives. But it often comes into how we treat other people. It stems from a heart that's, that's motivated by self-efforts, trying to merit favor before God. And it's a heart that's not aware of or responding to God's mercy. You know, behind a legalistic attitude and a sense of, is a sense of a need for self-atonement, really, to measure up. To keep God's standards in order to be acceptable. So you have to make, make others keep your standards, too. Because ultimately, you're fearful. That you won't meet up at God's standards. And you want to make sure you control things so that everybody meets God's standards. So everybody's acceptable to God. God's mercies prompt us, and he prompts us to something. And that's really the second idea that we're going to see in these verses, that God's mercy, it motivates us to live our lives in, in a continual activity, continually presenting our bodies to him as a living sacrifice. We live presenting our bodies to God in worship. That's the second idea here, that we live presenting our bodies to God in worship. You know, the children of Israel, they would present, now some of their offerings and sacrifices were for atonement, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. All of our sins have already been atoned for completely in Jesus Christ. So it's not the, the sacrifice of trying to atone for sin. No, this is what the children of Israel would do at times. They would, they would have a wave offering or an offering where they would worship God and acknowledge that he was first and foremost and it was a response to his mercy. And so Paul says, now because Jesus has paid it all for you, now you can live a life where you are the offering and saying, God, I want to worship you with my life. And he says you need to live with that mindset in response to his mercy. Think, God, I want to present all of me to all I know of you. Tom Schreiner says it's precisely those who are alive in Christ who are called to give their lives to him as a sacrifice. If you're alive in Christ, it's because Christ died in response to his, his mercy, his depth of mercy. We give our lives as a living, continual sacrifice, not a dying sacrifice, but we die to ourselves continually in our lives. You know, as a child, I don't know if anybody ever did this, but when I was a child, I, I really loved my mom a lot. I don't know what that is, but... Uh, my mom was pretty great, and if you ever watch football players, they're always like, I love you, mom. Because typically, at least generally, not everybody's mother was loving or kind, but generally moms love their kids, flaws and warts and all. And my mom loved me for all of my quirks and oddities and for all of my wildness. You know, I was reading Calvin and Hobbes the other day, and I was thinking, yeah, Calvin had nothing on me. Um, I was all over the place. But when I was a kid, I used to go out in the back field behind her house, and I would look for something I could present to my mom because I loved her. It was not a duty. It wasn't something I, I had to do. But, I mean, I would continue. Whenever i go out in the back field, I'd go and looking, and they had these little wild violets, and I'd pick those, or these Queen Anne's Lace, or the Black-Eyed Susans, or whatever would happen to be growing. They're snapdragons. I don't know how those stuff grew in our back field, but it did. And I would go, and I would pick these things, and sometimes there were weeds or buttercups that I thought were beautiful yellow flowers. And I would put all these weeds and flowers together and I would present them to her 
And I, and I would do that because, because she loved me and because she was my mom and I knew she loved me and I was, I was secure in her affections for me and because she was kind to me and she did things for me and she served me. And, and so my response to her, my presentation to her, it was not something that somebody had to force. I was constantly looking for flowers for my mom. I mean, maybe that's unusual, but I was always looking for flowers from out whenever I go out in the field. And I would always come back and present them to her, and I was really happy to. And, and she would always really receive them and say, you know, that's great and that's wonderful, even though they're probably really terrible most of the time. But I didn't have to think about it. It was an overflow of my heart for her. It wasn't much, but it was the effort. It was the thought that counted. That's the same imagery we have here, is that, that presentation to God. We present our bodies like that. We're always going to be looking, hey God, because you love me so much, I want to, wherever I go, I'm going to be looking for how do I, how do I present myself to you? I don't, you can't give God flowers, but you can give God your life. And it's beautiful, warts and all, broken stems and all, weeds and all. And, and we're to present our lives as an overflow of our heart for God. Our expression to him. Not out of duty, but out of delight. That doesn't mean it won't be costly or challenging, though. You know, flowers get cut. We pick them. There's even a dying in that. Our, our life, our presenting our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, is not easy, but is beautiful in its worship. And God delights. God delights in us living for him. You know, I'm glad I get to work when I was in the workplace. My job was not always rewarding in the marketplace. And, you know, but I was glad to go to work every day and get up way too early before the sunrise and leave the house. And because, in part, I was glad to work for my wife. I mean, yes, I knew that was my responsibility as a man. But really, I knew that, hey, I'm glad to go to work because this is how I support my wife. You know, I think about my kids. If my kids want something, I'm glad to spend the effort and sacrifice for them because I love them and they're worth it. You know, sometimes giving of ourselves is costly. Oh, actually, it's always costly. But there's joy in the giving. If, if you truly see that God will reward us, if we're aware of his overwhelming mercy to us, it's going to result in us presenting ourselves to him. And, and what we present ourselves to, it makes a difference. You know, if Paul talked about in Romans earlier he says don't present your bodies to sin because you're gonna be a slave to that sin instead present your bodies to God and then in Romans 6 16 he says do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience you are slaves of the one whom you obey either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness and he, he's giving us even different motivation, but more motivation of when we worship God and we give our lives to him, this is not something that results in slavery. Instead, this is something that results in righteousness before God and life and in joy. You know, earlier we, we presented our bodies to sin as instruments, but now we present our, our bodies to God as an offering for him to say, I'm going to make you Right? With me. I'm going, to, I'm going to continually to make you into the image of Jesus Christ. We offer up our bodies saying, God, use my body to worship you. Use me in your service. And it's, it's saying, God, I don't belong to myself any longer. I, I worship you, denying 
using my body for myself as purposes and it's saying, God, I want to honor you for your mercy. And that, that's supposed to govern every aspect of our behavior, right? It means self-denial. Paul says if we present our, God, our bodies to God as a living sacrifice, think about that, it's an ongoing sacrifice. Every day you wake up, it, it's to be a response saying, God, I want to worship you and I'm going to obey you, but it's because I want to live as a sacrifice to you in response and worship to you. Otherwise, you're going to fail in the Christian walk if you're not living out of a motivation of God's mercy and response as worship to him because really all of life is meant to be worship. If you are not aware that no punishment, no payment for sin remains, you're, you're going to get discouraged when you realize that you can't be good enough. Instead of saying, God, I can't be good enough, but thank you for your mercy. I don't have to be good enough. That you were good enough, Jesus, for me. If you get, if you get that, you're going to understand that our sacrifice is an offering to him and gratitude for his grace. It, it's saying, God, I, I want my desires to be conformed into your image. God, I, I'm going to sacrifice what I want. I'm going to sacrifice my preferences, my desire for me time, my my desire for downtime, for relaxation, for that, God, I feel like I need these things or I can't be happy. God says, no, offer those to me and you'll truly be happy. Is there something you're wanting that you're not getting and you're frustrated and you're angry? Maybe God's calling you to offer that to him as a sacrifice of worship. Just maybe. God calls us to say in response to my mercy, I want your life. And our sacrifice, it's ongoing, it's living. But it doesn't stop there. It says a living sacrifice, is, that's challenging enough, right? A continual living sacrifice. You know, maybe, maybe a better way of putting that is what Jesus said. Um, if anyone wants to follow after me, he must do what? He must take up his cross and follow me. That's our worship to God is actually taking up our cross. It's not earning his favor, but it's saying, God, because you took up your cross, because you died on the cross, I want to follow after you and sacrifice my life for you. But we're also exhorted not just to live, be a living sacrifice, but it's a holy sacrifice. And, and that kind of defines what a living sacrifice looks like. It's holy. And that's what's acceptable to God. It's holy. And that goes well with the message we heard from, from James last week that Aaron taught of, of why we learn that to live holy lives is, it looks like living unstained by the world. You know, James and Romans are really not at odds. They're very complementary. The book of, sorry, the book of James and the book of Romans, or the letter of James, letter of Romans. Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy to God, means that we are striving to live lives with holy motives, governing our behavior and displaying godly behavior. And you know what that might look like? It might look like saying, God, I'm going to be a living sacrifice and I'm going to be different. I'm going to, I'm going to live for you differently. And I don't mean trying to be weird, um, but I mean saying, God, I, I want to live differently than the whole world around me. And God, I, I want to, I'm going to live for what you live for. You, Jesus came to serve us, not to be served. And so how do we worship him? We worship him by serving. Whether or not anybody ever serves us in return. And for young adults and children, it might look like serving your parents or your siblings out of worship to God. For us, it might look like serving your neighbor or somebody in the church who's not able to do their own yard work or serving in children's ministry. Or it's a joyful sacrifice, but there's a, a living sacrifice involved. 
It might mean sacrificing your time. It might mean sacrificing your desire to play sports or to watch sports or to play music or to be in theater or leisure activities for some so that you can worship God. Now, it doesn't always mean that, but it could mean that. We need to be open to meaning that. It might mean giving up TV time or entertainment time or whatever you look to as an outlet and saying, God, I want to worship you and make sure this thing is not what I'm seeking for my fulfillment and satisfaction and peace and joy. It might look like making a meal for somebody or practicing hospitality, having people over when your house is dirty and dying to yourself and making a sacrifice of what people think about you. It, it might look like worshiping God by loving people when they don't love you in return. It might look like denying yourself by saying, you know what, I'm not going to go out and have a latte or buy a new shirt. Instead, I'm going to save that money and give it to other people or give it to the church. The living sacrifice. It, it might mean saying no. Well, I think it definitely involves saying no to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. He talks about in our bodies. Now, it's not just physically he's talking about, but with who we are in this world, who we are our bodies encompass all of that. He's not just talking about the flesh. He could have used that word, but he was talking about our entire body, everything we are, our mind, our, our heart, everything. It, it, it will mean saying no to the desire for vindication, retribution. It might be sacrificing our desire to be proven right. It might mean for some here, you need to present your bodies to God through exercise so you can be healthy and better shape. For others, it might mean sacrificing your desire to work out and giving up spending so much time doing that. And giving up or cutting out your me time to serve God and others. It gets personal, doesn't it? A living sacrifice. That hurts. It might mean that we actually have to live like we're sacrificing ourselves for God. But don't lose sight of the motivation. Because otherwise it won't work. It won't last. The motivation is in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies, in view of God's mercies. The whole first 11 chapters of Romans is God's mercies to make the unrighteous righteous. And we live out that way in worship, and that's how we worship. The next part of the verse says, which is your spiritual worship. And the word there is, is not the typical word for spiritual, but it's, it's the word that, that actually means reasonable, meaning not to do with physical bodies, but our reasoning, our, our spirit, our, who we are, the core of who we are. And we present our bodies as living sacrifices, spiritual worship. It's not mysticism, it's not mystical. Um, rationally following God is actually spiritual worship. There's nothing unspiritual about saying, God, I've got to think about what I'm desiring, and I'm going to worship you by doing that. That's very spiritual. That's why it's, that word can be translated both ways, reasonable, rational, spiritual and different translations are treated one of those two ways because translators really wrestle with that. What, is, what does he mean? He's not talking about physical. He's not talking about the normal spirit. But he's talking about the internal person of who we are. It, it's, it's worship from the core of who we are, our very spirit. In the primary sin of humanity that Paul described in Romans chapter 1, it was failing to acknowledge God and give him honor as God. And God gave them to the base mind and then they carried out in their bodies. And this is a direct reversal of that, how now we are to worship God, right? And in response, we're going to see this in a minute, renew our minds and then sacrifice God, sacrifice to God in our bodies. 
It's a wonderful, brilliant reversal. And if you read through the book of Romans, you're like, Paul, you're you're a genius. Or maybe the Holy Spirit's a genius, really. It's, It's reasonable worship, meaning that it's reasonable to think that we would present our whole selves to God in light of him giving himself so completely to us. And it's reasonable to think that if you really grasp what Jesus has done for you and how God is merciful to you continually, it is reasonable to think if you really get that, then you're going to respond in worship to him, in reasonable spirit worship to him. It also means worshiping in truth from the core of who we are, which is in contrast to going through the motions externally. Let me ask you, are you you worshiping God that way? Are you worshiping God from the core of who you are, thinking, God, in response to all you've done, that's why I want to give my life to you. And then let me ask you, are you willing to give up everything? Are you willing to give up your comforts? It's hard. I think every day I wrestle with that. Um, are, are, we, are we willing to give up our comforts, our desires, our preferences, what we think we need most? What do you think you need most? What, are you, what do you get angry about most? Let me ask you that question. You don't have to answer that one out loud. What do you get angry about most when you don't get it? What are you not getting right now in your life? Are you willing to say, God, I'm going to worship you with that desire. I'm going to give that desire to you and let you be God instead of letting that thing be God. And we worship God reasonably, but also as, as considering our motives, considering what's going on. We, pre- we present ourselves continually, prompted by God's mercy. And then not only that, the third thing we do is we live pursuing the process of transformation. We, we live a life. What does it look like in light of God's mercy? We worship him. We, we present ourselves to him. And then how do we do that? We present ourselves to him by living out the pro- pursuing the process of transformation through renovation, renewal. Live pursuing the process of transformation through renovation. And, and look at verse 2 where Scripture says, don't be conformed to this world. To be conformed, it, it means literally to fashion something according to a pattern. To be molded or stamped. A guy named Rene Lopez, he, he offers a, a good insight. He says, believers are commanded to refrain from being molded after the cultural norms of this age. For if they do not participate in church, prayer, reading the word, Christians will automatically, listen to that, Christians will automatically become victims of the world which will mold them. Now, I think he, he, he's a little bit off in that the Holy Spirit actually is in you and God's adopted you. He'll, he'll keep you from that. But there is something to what he's saying is that if you do not make an effort to not present yourself to the world, to being conformed, then you're going to be molded by the world. He says, hence Paul used the passive ter- tense of the verb conformed, which refers to the world's influence that will conform believers after its image. Consequently, a passive believer will be influenced to act and look like people of this age, unable to be distinguished as a child of God. What do you look like? I don't say that because to shame you, but are, are you passive? Are you passive as a believer? If so, you're going to be influenced to be conformed to this world. Are you thinking as a believer? What's motivating me? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Am I living life as worship? If you are not, you will be conformed in a different way. Now, ultimately, our hope and our trust is that that God will use whatever to conform us into his image. But if we're living that way, what God sometimes does is he says, if you're not going to live for me, I'm going to make it so that you see that you need to. 
Now, that's not always the discipline of the Lord, but sometimes God disciplines us like that. You know, being conformed to the world is looking out for yourself as number one. Instead, we need to resist being squeezed into that mold and take to heart what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? What does it mean to love your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? Peter, Peter talked about that too. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 1, he says, what does it look like to do that? He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action. So it starts in your minds. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Preparing your minds for action. What we think is the result in what we do. We prepare our minds so that we can take action, he says. Prepare your minds for action. And being sober-minded, meaning realize that this world we live in is going to seek to conform us and we live in a present evil age. Being sober-minded, he says, do what? Set your hope. He's talking about what Paul is talking about here. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ on the, the mercy of God that he is going to return and he's going to pour out all of his grace on you. He says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions, the desires of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. What's the motivation there? It's the grace, the mercy of God. What does it look like? It looks like presenting your body as a living sacrifice. What does it look like? Oh, in your mind, preparing your mind for actions and being sober and considering your environment, this age, this world around us. It means thinking soberly about life. In, in, in just a few areas of application, I want you to think deeply about. Want, we're we're, we're going to be deep thinkers as Christians. We're going to be thinking about what motivates us, what do we live for, why do we do what we do? So that we worship God and say, God, I want to offer all my life to you as worship. And it's going to affect how we live. Prepare your minds for action. It's going to shape us. It's going to conform us. The world will unless we're alert and awake. Don't think that you're not influenced by those ideas of moral relativism in the culture, the age around us. But as Christians, we're called to be the ultimate nonconformists. He says, don't be conformed. Now, I don't mean that don't obey God. I don't listen to God. Don't live life for him. But don't be conformed to the world because that's what everybody's already doing. The whole age, the whole world around us is, is conformed to not living for God, to not honoring God, and don't be conformed that way. Instead, worship God. I'm not called to rebel against God. Everybody does that by nature. But the, the real rebel, as one guy said, is a person who lives for God. The real nonconformist. The world says what's good for you is good for you, but don't tell me about it. The world says that truth's not absolute, and we're arrogant for believing the truth absolutely. The world says tolerance is accepting what everybody else believes, not disagreeing with them on the basis of what we believe. Don't be conformed. God says love is telling people the truth lovingly, even though it might mean disagreeing. The world's self-indulgent, but Christ gave himself up for us. The world says it's okay to publicly slander somebody or to... Be unkind to people on, on Facebook or social media or because, you know, if, if, as long as you think they're wrong, the Bible says love those who spitefully use you. The world says nudity, profanity, they're normal to be expected. God says, Ephesians 5.3, but sexual immorality and all purity and covetousness must not even be named among you as proper saints. There's not even be a hint. 
world says it's okay for corrupting speech and for us to use profanity and vulgarity in the speech that we use. And it's okay for us to say things that are unkind or cut down other people. And Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouths, but only was helpful for building up according to the needs that it might benefit those who listen. Don't be conformed to this world. Set our hope fully on the grace of God. Don't go along with the passions and desires we had before. Don't, it means don't give a desire to be escape. You, the world says, you know what? When times get tough, you need food or drugs or alcohol or entertainment. Gratification. And God says, no, don't be conformed to those ways of the world. Don't, don't give in to trying to escape or numb the pain by self-medicating with food or drugs or alcohol or entertainment or, or sports or recreation. Don't turn to social media for acceptance from others. Don't be conformed. The world says trust yourself. God says we can. We must trust in him. The world says gratify the desires you have. It feels good, do it. God says no, love me with all your heart, your emotions, your mind, your thoughts, your soul. And that means saying no to anything you look to for satisfaction more than God. God doesn't leave us alone wondering how we're supposed to do these commands. He tells us we're transformed by renewing our minds. That's where it starts. There is a battle going on, and Paul talked about that in Romans 7. There's a battle waging war inside of us. The very things that we want to do, we don't do because why? Because our desires and our minds, and we we have a battle going on. He says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Now, this transformation and renewal, it's kind of dual, We're transformed by the Holy Spirit. He transforms us. He makes us into his image. And he promises to do that in Romans 8.1. I mean 8.28 to 32 there. He talks about how he's going to conform us into the image of Christ. Ultimately. But we have a part to play in this transformation process. It's actually a command to be transformed. And yet he will transform us. But that's really our hope. Is that we can delight in the fact knowing that. You know as I submit myself to God and worship in response to his mercy. That as I pursue transformation, he's going to transform me. And that this renewal of my mind, although in one sense, he has to make me able to be renewed, we have to pursue the process of renewal too. He says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He doesn't just say, clear your mind, meditate, don't think about anything. No, that's, that's not a recipe for change. The recipe for change is be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You know, Paul uses a word there, transformed. At first I thought about transformers and illustrations there, but that, that, that wasn't really helpful for me. The, the, the word transformed, it, it's the same word we have for metamorphosis. It's actually, the word is metamorphosis in, in the original language. And, 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 and he uses that word because it's a dramatic transformation from one thing to another. A few weeks ago, I talked about that transformation, really, from a caterpillar to a butterfly. I, I used to live a couple blocks away from a wetlands, a marshy area that was right up against the woods, and we used to play there. In the springtime, we would get soaking wet and muddy, and my mom wouldn't like that because we'd come back really dirty. But we'd go to these marsh, and it was so loud, though, at night like probably a quarter mile away almost, it was so loud at night that we had to, we, we didn't have air conditioning when I was growing up. I know it's a shocker to anybody under 40, but we didn't have air conditioning growing up, and it was hot, so we always had the windows open. But in the springtime, when the spring peepers were making this loud noise, we had to close the windows because otherwise you'd go deaf, like a quarter mile away. And so we closed the windows, and 
in the streams that ran through the wetlands, not too long after they would sing, we discovered these, these large clouds of frog legs. And I actually have a picture of them for you here, I think. I think we have a picture of it. Yeah, no, you can't really see it, but there'd be these clouds of, of eggs all over the place in the wetlands, like all everywhere you would walk. And it'd be kind of gross at times because they get stuck to your legs and they were really sticky. And not too long after that, there's those clouds, there'd be like eight or 900 dots in each of those clouds, which is about the number of eggs that each frog lays. It's really astounding. And these, these little black dots, they would change. And these little black dots, they would turn into a thing at the very bottom there. It's just kind of this blob. Actually, even before that, when it had the, the tail, it would be this blob. And you, and you come like a couple weeks later, and there's these blobs all over the place and they're eating these mosquito larvae. And then that blob would eventually have this little bulge at the back. And then, and then eventually there would appear back legs and then front legs. And then this weird thing would crawl out of the water. You can show the next picture, I think. It would crawl out of the water. And these little, we used to put them on our fingers just like that. These little weird-looking creatures that were froglets with these tails. And then eventually they'd fall off and they'd be those spring peepers. It was a dramatic metamorphosis from an egg to something that was swimming with internal gills, to something that breathed through the water, to something that eventually will breathe oxygen. There's a transformation, a change that occurs at, at the very heart of, of a frog. He's transformed into something that, that goes on land, and it's amazing to watch. And Paul uses that kind of imagery, that, that metamorphosis kind of imagery, saying that be transformed. Now, like the frog, the frog didn't change itself. And so one response, we don't really change ourselves, but we participate in the process. Those tadpoles had to eat the mosquito larvae. We, we, must, we must receive God's word. We must feed on God's word. And he uses that to transform us and to really change us into the image of Christ. That's what he's talking about here is the fulfillment or how Romans 8, 28, 32 takes place is as we renew our minds, we're transformed into what? Into the image of Christ. So that although we do not look, you can go back to that frog picture you know, right now, the one before that, right now we look like that thing on the bottom in comparison to Christ. But one day we're, we're going to look like him. Now, he's not a frog. But one day we're going to look fully like him. And it's that process, that transformation process that he calls us to participate in with him. And, and that word, I love it, it, says be transformed by the renewal of your mind or Another way of putting that word would be to, in the renovation of your mind. Now, for me, I don't know why it's helpful. Maybe it's because about four or five years ago, I, we bought a foreclosed home, and we had to renew it or renovate it because it was just a shell on the outside. And so we had to put up trim and lights and all kinds of stuff and put in cabinets and sinks and toilets and all that kind of stuff. And it was a, it was a complete renewal to make it useful. And we're doing renovation work in our minds is what the Apostle Paul is saying. Tearing down the old walls or renovating. You know, when you do a reno, and I'm sure when they go on the trip to Houston to help, what they're probably going to be involved in doing as well as creating things or building things is actually knocking down, taking out the stuff that's contaminated. In our minds, the remaining sin nature, the sin nature still remains in our lives. The effects of it still remain. It's like the black mold in the walls after a flood. And, and, and we're called to re- renew or renovate our minds, to, to rip out the old ways of thinking, the old ways of doing the things that got contaminated. We're to renew our minds. And the implication there is, if you look in the context, is really through God's word. And he renews our minds too. We tear down those old ways of thinking and reacting. We put up new patterns, new ways of thinking and responding. 
Spend time thinking about God on your own, reading about God. That's why you read in the morning. It's, it's not that like, ooh, so you have these amazing times with the Lord. It's so that you can renew your mind with what's true because we need to renew our minds. Put on new ways of responding to God. Maybe go to a Bible study or talk about God in a small group. That's why we go to a small group is to renew our minds. Talk about God at dinner with your family. Process through your day. Relate back to God. Engage in the renewal, renovation process. Don't be passive. Memorize scripture as we sing songs on Sunday morning. We're renewing our minds with truth. You might notice we have a lot of wordy songs on Sunday mornings. It's not just because we like wordy songs. It's, it's minds being renewed and we're being transformed as we renew our minds in worship to God. Ultimately, resting in the fact that he gives us his mercy afresh every day. You know, in a, in a renovation, you need power to supply power to the tools. And Siri is interacting with me now, too, so that's good. Um, in, in the renovation process, we need power and we need tools. And God gives us the power and He gives us the tools. He enables us by the Holy Spirit, by His mercy. He, he enables us when we are weak, He is strong. And He gives us all the tools we need, all that we need for life and godliness, He gives to us. And he says, now I want you to do something with the power I've given you, with the tools I've given you. Now engage with me in the renovation process. It it means looking, presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, pleasing to God. It it, at least metaphorically means looking for flowers for God, if you will. Look honestly how I spend my time and going out into the fields of life and saying, God, Where can I find ways to honor you, to display you, to worship you? And then you know what happens? He tells us the result of that, of living life that way, as presenting our lives to God, our bodies to God, about renewing our minds, um, worshiping in response to his his mercy. Look down in your Bibles. It says, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and perfect, acceptable, acceptable and perfect. You want to know what God's will is for you? You're going to find that out as you respond to his mercy. Here's, here's what his will is for you. Respond to his mercy. Present your bodies to him as a living sacrifice. Honor him with all that you are. Trusting in him, renewing your mind, being transformed. That's God's will for your life. And then in the daily decisions of life, is he's going to make his will. You may be able to discern by testing. You may be able to discern or you may be, by proving, you can prove what his will is and that his will is good and perfect. And that doesn't mean that his will is always easy, but that in the midst of trials and difficulties, you say, Lord, I know this is what you have for me because I'm able to worship you and I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. And God's will for your life becomes more and more clear. The ultimate answer to the why question that we get as parents, it's that we ask, is that God's mercies, God's mercies are the why. That's, that's, the, that's what's to motivate us. The how is presenting our bodies to him as worship. The how we do that or maybe the what is presenting our bodies, the how we do that is better be transformed by renewing our minds. But all of it is only in response to his mercy. 
Now, maybe, maybe you're here and you've not been delighting in the mercies of God, and, and I would encourage you to go back and reflect on all the mercies of God. Maybe you need to repent for living for other things. That's what God's calling you to. Or maybe you just need to say, God, you know what? I don't understand right now, but I want to I live in response to you, in response to your mercy. I think it replies to each and every one of us, no matter what season you're in. Amen? Well, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. God, may we behold your mercies. May we see them. Would you drop the blinders from our eyes that we might see all the ways that you're merciful to us? And then, God, I pray that we would be motivated by your mercy and that we respond to your mercy in worship gladly and with joy. And God, I pray that you would give us joy in that, that we would enjoy worshiping you and that, Lord, you would, you would transform us as our minds are renewed in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.